Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's hard to imagine what life would have been like for the Levisons after the man they believed killed their son was found not guilty. When Michael Atkins walked away from court a free man, the Levisons were left in a kind of limbo land. Matthew was still missing, and when the jury said not guilty, any hope of finding him drifted away like a wisp of smoke. But some people in this world never take no for an answer, especially when they're fighting for someone they love. Mark and Faye Levison are those people. They promised Matt's two brothers, Pete and Jason, that they would find Matt's body and bring him home. But for now, the Levisons would drive past a funeral procession and think wistfully, lucky buggers. Because at least those people had a loved one to bury, a body to lay to rest. They had nothing. How did you guys, over the years that Maddie was still missing and you would come across, I mean, people die, it's a natural part of life. Did you, in those moments, think about... Maddie's potential funeral yes, and what it was. Yeah. So I've said it often. We drive past a funeral and I think, you lucky bastards. Uh, yeah, they, here they are having a ceremony, being able to say goodbye to their loved one, which we couldn't do at that stage. I found it very hard to go to funerals. Very, very hard. Just after Matt disappeared, a very good friend of the family got married. And we were all prepared to go to the wedding and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I had a migraine and I was and I think it was just through all the the trauma and all that. And that was hard. We really wanted to go to the wedding, but I was just too sick. It was just what was beautiful though, one of the boys that testified for Maddie, he actually got married when they were able to get married and we went to his wedding. It was it was beautiful. And he started playing Matt's song and he asked me to dance and that was... And he knew what song he was playing too. It was intentional. Yeah. It was just, yeah, very, very emotional for both of us. And watching them get married, just sort of standing there, why didn't Matt have a beautiful partner like he's got? You know, why did he have to get involved with that it? And it's moments like those that are very hard to hard to um to take and the other song dancing queen whenever i hear that and it's always popular and they always play it at mardi gras somewhere along the line but that was the last dance i danced with maddie too how do you go with things in um movies or books or triggers how do you cope when something will come up in a storyline that reminds you of Maddie, as as he was, but also obviously um, the the experience that you had burst, with his death. I burst out crying. Matt loved Never Ending Story. I can watch that. He loved My Girl. I've never watched My Girl since. I don't think I could. Yeah, I haven't watched My Girl. And then when I hear the music, that just really, really breaks me up. That was his two favourite movies. Uh, he loved My Girl. As well as coping with the loss of Matt, the hope of finding him had to stay at the forefront of their minds. It was vitally important for Mark and Faye to find Matt's body, because if they did, it would relieve Pete and Jason from inheriting the burden. The Levisons didn't know what had happened to Matt, but they did suspect that Michael Atkins at least knew where his body was. 
Like many families of missing loved ones, the Levisons became amateur detectives in their quest. Because the police had kept surveillance on Michael Atkins for part of the first week Matt was missing and had pieced together his movements for the rest of it, the Levisons believed that Matt might not be that far away. They too pieced together the clues and used their own logic to try and figure out where he was. We'd go to the National Park and early on we, we pulled in information from the... Because um, the police had a timeline of the first week of Atkins basically when they left Ark to the, the sleaze ball the following weekend. And I wanted to expand that. And I had my own timeline. We call it the body disposal timeline. From the last known footage of them leaving Ark up to Atkins signing his work sheet arriving at work on the Monday morning. And that was a much narrower time frame than the police had, but we went into that in more detail. We had information eventually of mobile phone places and contacts in that period of time, unaccounted for times as well. Matt also filled his car up on the Tuesday or Wednesday of the week before he went missing. We had records of the credit card, purchase of the fuel, and elapsed kilometres on the odometer. So we used that to give us a search radius in terms of distance and time. And um, it wasn't perfect, but uh, that was a starting point. And then we got records from the Bureau of Meteorology, and that we knew that that night they disposed of Matt was a clear night, a fairly cloud-free night, a seven-eighths full moon and uh, no rain. It was not too cold in the low 20s. So it's a good night to be in the bush. So we go out in National Park in those exact conditions at about two or three in the morning to look at places where we thought we'd get a car off the road, number one. We're getting to penetrate the bush and be able to dig, get rid of the body. And in following the possible paths of Atkins and digging around to find Matthew's grave, Mark and Faye had a realisation that, in the end, wasn't surprising. They needed a mattock, the same tool Atkins had been caught on CCTV buying at Bunnings on the day Matt disappeared. Then we go back of a daytime, we found viable places, and dig and see what the ground was like. It was very soon we realised after we first looked, you couldn't do it without a mattock. So we'd take a mattock along too because the ground was often rooted. There was trees in there, or tree roots, or there was uh, rocks below the surface. You didn't know until you struck a blow. So we just used that for our intel to, to search for Matt. And that was going on the whole time. We started that early on, looking around. And uh, again, National Park, Colonel Peninsula, uh, you know, based on where this car was found at Sutherland, it seemed the most logical place to look. But again, nothing was perfect. And we thought, you know, with the chance of finding Matt, it's probably one in a million, one in 10 million, but it wasn't zero. So we've got to give it a go. Gosh. How many weeks or months have passed when you decide together as a couple that you're going to go into the National Park? Pretty well straight up, I think about two months. We started around where the car was parked because there's tennis courts and there's beehives, there's a bike track and there's bushy parts down there. So we started looking down there. We fine-tuned our skills. Don't we just look generally first not knowing what to do and then we've got more, more detail in terms of getting, getting some intel in to know better where to look and when to look. We also then purchased a metal detector as well. Of course, we thought Matt was wearing a cargo shorts with a metal button and a zipper that maybe we might find a hit on those. So uh, we've got a decent detector and uh, we found lots of things, spent bullet casings, ring pull cans, tins, and now some are quite deep. So knew, yeah, so we knew the, the machine, uh, the, the device works. It's a, it might help us in what we're trying to achieve. I'm just trying to imagine getting to that mindset of making the decision with your spouse about going out and physically conducting a ground search to find your missing child. Do you remember who proposed it? No, no I it's, think... it's early on. It's how long ago. We just, we just, it was a, a joint effort and, yeah, a, and, think... a, and a, an agreed thing we did, but I don't know who started. Yeah, I think we... because we've been married for so long, we finish each other's sentences mm. off and we, we'll go to say something or even if you're looking at Facebook, we've got the same picture up. It's just too uncanny. It is just too <laughs> uncanny. It's too scary, actually. Mm. But I think we thought we can't well, just we can't do, nothing. do nothing. We're parents. That's our son. We are, we are with the Matt. During our discussions, Faye revealed that in the lead-up to Matt going missing, she was very ill. This was also something that the Levisons wrestled with during their search for Matt because it was a big unknown. Would Faye recover? Would her recovery prompt feelings of guilt because she was still here and Matt wasn't? 
Two years before Matt was killed, Faye had battled cancer. And we didn't want to pass on because I had cancer and I only had a 2% chance of survival. 16 years last week, 16 years Mm. on here. Oh, yeah, it was bad. So I had guilt as well. Why did I survive? Why didn't they take me instead of Matt? He had his life. I'd lived my life. The boys were old enough to carry on. But he was just starting his. So it's unfair. It's not right. So for us not to do anything, because I didn't want the boys, if we passed... They'd be doing it, and I didn't want them to do that. I didn't yeah, we want did them want that to see that they're not knowing what happened to their brother. So we'll do all we can. And... During the years in which Matt was missing, the Levisons had support from so many people outside their family. Matt's friends and even his friends' parents would help out with cooking meals. But they experienced a phenomenon well known to people who've been in their situation. Some people they were close to were nowhere to be found when the Levisons needed them most. So we've been really, really blessed. People that we didn't really know have turned out to be our best friends and family and people that you thought would be there for you just vanished. Ambiguous loss in this context differs in many ways to a standard certain loss. When someone dies, there's often a period in the immediate aftermath where people, friends, neighbours and the community gather together and drop off casseroles, send flowers, the social rituals that go with normal bereavement. But an ambiguous loss is awkward because it's unclear. People don't know what to do, how to approach the family or what to say, which means there's a clunky or delayed response or no response to the grieving family. With this type of loss, it's best to avoid platitudes. The last thing a family wants to hear is, I understand what you're going through. And instead, either simply listen to them and be there and or provide genuine and practical assistance, like helping with housework, meal preparation or search efforts like poster distribution. I know it's hard to overcome the awkward, but that kind of support is critical and alleviates a weight I can't even begin to explain. So in the early stages, did you get that as well? Was there the casserole drop-offs when Matt first went missing or it was um, all sort of later on? There was a few. Yeah, well, there, there yeah, certainly there was. was. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Even Matt's school principal. Yeah, he brought over oh. a lasagna. He brought a lasagna oh, for us. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good, because that's, I think, a lot of people don't know what to do when this first happens, when yeah. someone just vanishes. And I well, think so there's a real... Get, that's the trouble, see, it's not the norm, so exactly. uh, I don't know how to react. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the, the thing is, a lot think we expect them to solve our problem. We know they can't, but they, they don't know that, so they don't talk to you, they, they walk, they'll go away, whereas all we need to know is just they're there for us, that's all. Mark and Faye have a network of friends who've had family members go missing or been murdered. They call them their murder friends. And we've got really what we call, as I said, our murder friends and um, one in particular up in Grafton. She's lovely. Um, we, we call Robin our sister. And we talk to each other and it, it's great because we know where each other's coming from. And like you, yeah, these kind of friends just get it and that, that's it. They, they get it. There are all sorts of challenges when families face ambiguous loss particularly in high-profile cases like Matt's. And while there have been many friends over the years who didn't know how to react or what to do, who in the end actively avoided them, the flip side is that they have experienced the kindness of strangers. And so people do recognise you at the supermarket and at the shops. And has that kind of changed? (laughs) This might sound weird, but like, are you so conscious of that, that your public behaviour has changed at all over the years? Because you think, oh, they might, you know, like not putting a trolley back in the supermarket car park or little things like that that are cheeky, but ordinarily you'd get away with it. Are you conscious of like, oh, but people might know who I am or? I don't no. think so. No, we, no, we, we didn't no. muck up to any degree before, but uh, well, I've, not, I've not changed anyway based on if this is me. If they don't like it, I don't really care. I think sometimes, it, depending on how you're feeling on the day, sometimes... 
it's nice to be recognised. And other days you think, oh, no, please don't. You see somebody walk towards you, please, no, no, no. But then they're nice, so that that they're always nice. They're always, always nice. nice. So then that change changes yeah. it. It thinks, oh well, they're good enough to come up because we lost friends. They wouldn't even say talk to us. So for a complete stranger to come up, it made you feel, well, we've done the right thing. When someone dies a normal death, wheels are set in motion for their affairs to be tidied up. Don't get me wrong, I'm acutely aware that there are still very real procedural challenges, but there's at least a template. When someone goes missing, things get complicated in ways most people never have to think about. One example was when Matt went missing, he took all his passwords to his unknown grave, which meant accessing his accounts was difficult. What challenges did the Levisons find the hardest? Can you tell me a bit about the administrative hurdles, the practical hurdles that were in the way um, in terms of Matt's accounts and affairs and things like that? We engaged our solicitor to give us a hand at the start and uh, with his help, we're able to finalise some accounts very easily. But others were an absolute nightmare in terms of managed funds, superannuation, the effort and hassle they had to go through because I was at work and it, was, it shouldn't be placed on a grieving mother like that. It was just awful. Even the um, insurance on the car became due, the licence and things like that. They were, we needed a death certificate and we, that we didn't have. We had a letter from the police to cancel his driver's licence, but that wasn't enough. And re- the registration, so all we could do was just re-register it for him right? in the event that obviously we knew he wasn't going to come home, but that small hope that he would come home, his car would be registered and the same with the insurance. All we could do was just pay the, the insurance in his name so we could keep it going. What's more common these days, um, who hasn't got a mobile phone? And to close down his mobile phone account was, you know, a great ordeal, huge ordeal. It just doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, it's, it's a very straightforward, it's a pretty standard transactional agreement with a, a telco. You know, you've either, you've got the account, then surely, I mean, if the bills aren't being paid, I mean, but were you, were you continuing to pay and not only the um, rego and the, the insurance, were you paying for the phone bills at that, that point? That was automatically coming out of his... Oh, uh, direct debit. Direct debit. And also his gym. He had a direct debit for his gym. Luckily, the gym owner knew Matt and it. And uh, when I rang him up, he just stopped it for me because he knew the circumstances. So he stopped the payments coming out. But with other places, it wasn't that easy. And then we had to wait and go through probate to wind up all his super, which wasn't much because he was only 20 years old, to wind that up. It took quite a bit and it had to go, obviously, go to the Supreme Court, but we had to wait for a death certificate. Then we had to prove that there was no little Matthews running around the place and nobody had claim to his super. So that had to go into the paper because apparently Atkins could have said something but went in the paper and he never approached for it. I might say that the NRMA, they weren't very helpful at that stage either and we also got a letter from them offering Matt a um, chance to do another job within the organisation and so when I rang up, oh, I'm terribly sorry, that was just computer generated computer-generated or not, there should have been a hold on his name within the organisation. These major organisations, you know, burdened down by their administration, were blinkered and couldn't think outside the box. This is not a normal case. There's no body, there's no death certificate at this stage. One did come, but they, they couldn't cope with that. They had no idea what to do. And yet this happens all the time. Like, you know, you're not the only family in this no. state it, that's dealing with this. It must. Yeah just infuriates me that there aren't reforms around. There there needs to be because you're going through an awful lot. I mean, it's bad enough that, you know, your loved one's missing, he wasn't coming home. But for those people that are waiting 20 years, they can't just put their lives on hold. They can't have their house not being able to sell it or whatever they need to do 
to help them along financially. They can't just go on for those years. There's got to be something in place for people with loved ones missing that they can get access. The court gives them the right to access whatever they need. Yeah, to Not manage. just give them the right, but make it easy for them as if, you know, the last thing a grieving family wants at that point is the hassle to, to fight for things it should have easily. Absolutely. And to be guided. So you were, you had a solicitor that you were paying for out of pocket or was this offered yep. to you? Yes. No. You yes. were paying for the solicitor yeah. who told you about all of these things that you That's had to right. do. Yeah. So it was easier initially to continue to pay for Matt's rego and his health insurance because it was impossible to, to suspend or cancel those accounts because, of course, you weren't the account holder. Exactly. Um, at what point did that change? When were you then committed to getting that that piece of paper that would make those processes easier to complete? I think once the coroner started an inquest and then it was suspended because it was going to trial, I think it all started after the trial. That's when we started to, to you know, start to try and close things down and that. Uh, I think though, and that's two years. Did you get a death certificate? After? We yeah, we did. We applied through the coroner's office and um, they gave us one with an open finding. It was like an interim death right. certificate. It wasn't a death certificate as such. It was an interim one, if that's the term for it. So we could start finalising Maddie's affairs. And what was that process like, getting that first interim death certificate for Maddie? Horrific. Man? Yeah. Absolutely Horrific. I got told by the coroner's department that they'd sent the paperwork through to birth, deaths and marriages. So just I could apply to get that certificate. So I rang them up and I went through about six people asking the same questions. Where is he buried? Who was the undertaker? Where's the paperwork from the undertaker? And I explained to the person, one after the other, that he was missing we didn't have a body. There's been no funeral. We can't have a funeral because we haven't found him. I can't help you. I'll have to put you on to somebody else. Six times I went through that. Then they said they didn't have the paperwork from the coroner's office. So the coroner's office and I was being ping pong ball between the two offices. Then we got onto a really good person at the coroner's office. They organised it. I went in, filled out the paperwork by this stage, I was just beside myself being handed Maddie's death certificate. I read it. It looked fine. Jumped on the train, got back to work because Mark couldn't come. He had clients. Um, he read it and he said, it's wrong. They'd uh, put my married name where my maiden name should have been, even though I'd filled out the forms correctly. So then I rang them back up again to have it fixed and I wanted to speak to the person who had organised it for me. No, you can't speak to them. Why not? I just I was just in there. No, no, no. We'll have to email them and that can take up to seven seven to fourteen business days for them to reply to you. And I said, But I need this fixed. So you're telling me I can't do it over the phone. I'd be better off jumping on the train and going back into the city. Yes. So that's what I did. Was there I'm curious about the um the electoral commission because that did you have an instance oh, where thank you for reminding me, yes. yes. There was a voting and we rang them up and we told them that um, Matt was no longer. He got a fine for not voting. Even though you'd made contact, explained the situation, provided enough proof. I mean, you could just Google his name and yep. and still he was fined. He was fined. So we, we got out of that. We had to do an affidavit to for them to say, forget it. God, that infuriates me because we had the same situation. One more kick in the guts, yeah. that's it. And so completely unnecessary. One, one of our local MPs actually sent Ma, uh, Matthew a, um, a 21st birthday card. You know how the, the local members send you a, a card for milestone birthdays? We got a 21st birthday card for Maddie. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry that you had to endure it. And there would have been lots. There would have been, was there like quarterly or annual statements from super and banks and other yeah. sorts of things as yeah. well? Yeah, it yeah. took a while to stop. Yeah. And also Ark sent him a thing for some event. Oh, my So we we're, were getting things from all over the place, but places that you would have thought would have taken his name off the mailing list. But 
everybody just kept saying, oh, well, it's a computer. It's a computer. It's not us. We're sorry, but, you know, it wasn't intentional. But that doesn't help. That doesn't help when you see your son's name on a, on a letter, especially when they're offering him another job. That was just a real, real shock. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So after going through what they went through, Mark has some advice for everyone. A heads up to anybody listening to the podcast. We were talking before, if you've got the chance, just pop your passwords in your will. So if ever you're lost, at least the family can close down your electronic life as well. That is so important, increasingly so, because there are so many different accounts that we all have now. And but so- the problem being is that we're all so individual. I may have um, accounts at a certain bank and a certain telco. You may have them at a different bank, different telco. So there's, there's, there's no across-the-board easy rule. It is so difficult. In the years after Atkins received his not guilty verdict in October 2008, the Levisons never stopped searching for Matt. They pushed for the coronial inquest to be reopened. It was only suspended pending the results of the criminal trial against Atkins. Since he was acquitted of murdering Matt, it made sense to try and get the coroner to look into the circumstance further. But in September 2010, Deputy State Coroner McMahon, the original coroner who suspended the initial inquest, determined that he would not be reopening it. The coroner's registrar wrote to the Levisons, explaining this decision. His Honour advises that at this time it is not appropriate to conduct a fresh inquest. His Honour has directed that the investigation of your son's disappearance should continue. In the event of further evidence becoming available, it will be considered, and if appropriate, a fresh inquest may be conducted. That meant that while he wouldn't reopen the inquest, the police should continue investigating the circumstances around Matt's disappearance. It's worth pausing here to examine the laws around double jeopardy. Essentially, it means you can't be tried twice for the same crime if you are found not guilty. But in 2006, in New South Wales, there was an amendment to this law. The amendment was that if fresh and compelling evidence was uncovered, then police could appeal to the Director of Public Prosecutions for approval if it is in the interests of justice. The police got the green light from the DPP to conduct further investigation into Matt's disappearance and presumed death. They were on the hunt for fresh and compelling evidence against Atkins. And what of Michael Atkins? Found not guilty of a crime many believed he committed, he left Sydney and moved to Fortitude Valley, an inner-city suburb of Brisbane known for its nightlife and pumping dance clubs. Certainly no intentions to retire and hide away after his 13 months in prison and trial for murder. It seemed like he continued his habit of partying with men half his age. He even hosted an annual Australia Day event that he named Pool Party for Porn Stars, filled with men aged in their early 20s. The dress code was very little. A man who attended the parties told news.com.au, he called them pool parties for porn stars and he'd want the youngest and most attractive men he could find and we'd get ludicrously drunk and out of it. He was always groping us. He'd want everyone's shirts off and then he'd be grabbing young guys on the arse. 
We just thought he was an old guy trying to have fun while he still can. Gary Jubelin is a former New South Wales homicide detective, now known widely for his book and his podcast, I Catch Killers. While he was a detective, he had been involved in some of the most high-profile cases in the state. He has investigated the Bowerville murders and the disappearance of William Tyrrell. Back then, he was a detective chief inspector at the Homicide Squad. He met Mark and Faye Leveson four years after Atkins was acquitted to see if it was possible to find fresh and compelling evidence against him. The local Miranda police had been in charge of the investigation with the use of a Homicide Squad advisor. Now, the Levisons hoped the Homicide Squad would take over Matt's case. We went out to Homicide to meet with the then head of Homicide and two detectives, one being Gary Jubilin, and... um, they agreed to relook at the case. That was in the year because we met Gary. He was just brought in as an advisory role, and Mick Willing arranged the um, meeting. And there was another detective who wasn't very interested, but Gary was going off a year sabbatical, so this other detective was put in charge. So when I get information, I would ring him or email him. Mark and Faye were buoyed by the fact that the Homicide Squad had agreed to reinvestigate Matt's case. When Gary Jubelin took a year's leave soon after this meeting, another detective was put in charge. It turned out, during this year, there was a development. Faye learned that there had been a tip-off to Crime Stoppers. An ex-boyfriend of Atkins, who we will give the pseudonym Brian, had moved overseas just before Matt disappeared. On the 8th of June 2010, Brian had a message on Facebook from Mikey Boy, who he assumed was Mike Atkins. He chatted with Mikey Boy for 40 minutes, and the exchange disturbed him so much that he contacted Crime Stoppers. Here is the exchange. Mikey Boy. I found some of Matt's stuff the other day. Brian. Really? Mikey Boy. So I dropped it off to him. Brian. What do you mean you dropped it off to him? Mikey boy. Left it where he is. Brian. Question mark. Mikey boy. Where he is residing doesn't matter. I will show you when you come back. Brian. Are we talking about Maddie? Mikey boy. Yep. Maybe I should stop. I am drunk. Brian. Where is he residing? Mikey boy. He lives in the bush now. Brian. He's still alive then? Mikey boy. In spirit, yes. In physical being, no. Dead men tell no tales. Brian. LOL. Mikey boy. You want to know how he died? Brian. Yeah? Mikey boy. He called me a dog and I hit him. His head hit the passenger side window of the car and he was unconscious. Then he just OD'd. Serves him right. When it wasn't followed up by police, Brian called Crime Stoppers again. And again. But still nothing. Frustrated, he and his friends reached out to Faye with the information. They hoped she could urge the police to follow it up. They gave Faye their Crime Stoppers reference number to quote to the police. I'd got a message from this guy that they had to check a um, Crime Stoppers report and they gave me the number. So I approached Miranda Police on numerous occasions and then I gave it to another detective that was supposed to be our contact when Gary was away. And everybody kept saying to me, it's not a Crime Stoppers number. Even when I spoke to one of the police at Missing Persons, no, no, it's not a Crime Stoppers number. It took Gary Jubelin to return from his year's leave to get to the bottom of the matter and kickstart the reinvestigation. So after that year passed, when Gary came back, he um, came back and he didn't have any cases and he saw in the office that our file hadn't been touched. It had been sitting there and nothing had been done, which got his back up. So he started looking at it 
again and he rang us, I think, and came down and talked to us. Yeah, and he, he formed a small strike force. It's still called Strike Force Baddich, the original name. And uh, there's he and three other detectives. And he said that, look, it's it's not going to be a big team, but I've got some dedicated good guys and he couldn't have said truer words. You know, all four were just wonderful to us. Thorough, communicative. Uh, we knew all the time what was going on. Even operational things that um, couldn't be told to us weren't, but we were still let know things were happening. And were you guys familiar with Gary Jubilant prior to him being associated with your case? Did you know of him? We knew of him. Just of him, yeah. yeah we and hadn't had any dealings directly mm-hmm. with him. We'd- he also was working on a, a friend of ours, son's disappearance. We've met her through our circumstance, a lovely lady, and uh, various other cases. So we knew of his reputation and that he got the job done. And when I told him about this Crime Stoppers number that I'd been to Miranda, I'd uh, messaged this other detective about, uh, spoke to some of the police that were at Family and Friends of Missing Persons, and they all said to me, no, it's too long, it's not a Crime Stoppers number. Well, when I gave that to Gary, it was within days that he came back and they had, had the Crime Stoppers report, two numbers had been transposed and they'd put an R in our surname. The two small mistakes that no other cop could find, and yet his team came up with it in days. All the Levisons knew was that Crime Stoppers reports had been made. They were given the reference number, but they didn't know what Brian had told the police. Not only did Gary Jubilin find the report, he found that Crime Stoppers had been contacted on three separate occasions about this same tip-off, the first time back in 2010. Gary's only recently been appointed or involved with the case and he didn't know at that stage that he could trust us, which is fair because he was new to the investigation, new to us. And uh, he let us know there'd been a major breakthrough, a major, major breakthrough. It involved travelling uh, overseas and it was a significant breakthrough in the case. But we didn't know anything more than that. As soon as they heard which country the police had been to, the Levisons knew who had provided the information to the police, as it was the country that Atkins' ex-boyfriend Brian had moved to. And what followed was an elaborate plan to get Atkins on tape confessing to Matt's murder. Brian agreed to fly back to Australia and accidentally bump into Atkins and confront him about the Facebook message. On Saturday the 27th of September 2014, Brian ran into Atkins outside his apartment, While nothing came of this meeting, Brian later met Atkins at a local pub and finally confronted him about the Facebook messages. In a turn of events no one expected, Atkins denied having a Facebook account, and so the messages had not been sent by him. During the taped meeting, Atkins said that he had nothing to do with Matt's disappearance. And it's this kind of stuff that makes it so hard for families of missing people to allow themselves to get their hopes up about anything after a while. The crushing disappointment is just too much. When Gary Jubilin told them about Mikey Boy, they knew straight away it was another man who impersonated Atkins online. What they had was they thought Atkins had confessed to his involvement in Matt's murder to his former partner. One day we were on on hands-free in the car and Gary rang us from his uh, desk with the forensic psychologist, uh, Dr. Sarah Yule, and said, we can tell you what the breakthrough is. We've got this confession. Atkins has confessed his involvement to the ex-partner. We said, how? He said, he did it through his Facebook page, Mikey Boy. And we were in the car, we sort of glanced at each other and said, well, no, no, that's not right, because Atkins hasn't got a Facebook page. And Gary said, yes, he has. He said, no, no, no. Mikey Boy's that one from that clown, Kevin Britton. And Gary said, nothing. There was silence from out on the phone. And we reiterated, no, that's, that's not, not a real Facebook page, not a real profile. Kevin Britton, a pseudonym, was one of a number of serial pests that hovered around cases that hit the media. Kevin was thought to have broken into Atkins' car, stolen things from him, and set up a mobile phone in his name. Kevin had also created the Facebook page pretending to be Michael Atkins and messaged Brian with this false confession. 
How does it feel for families who suffer these monumental letdowns? We went nearly 12 months thinking that we've got him. The boys thought, we've got him. He's, he's going down for Matt's murder. He didn't mean to give, he didn't give us any false hope, but we thought, well, it must be big. We just think, yep, we've got him. He's going down. And then for him to turn around and say, we came from Mikey boy, it was just, oh, no. How frustrating. It was. It was we, we felt his frustration too. Gary was really, really upset with what, what we told him. I bet. Him. And embarrassed. He was, yeah, but he was upset because he's got our hopes up, Not really, even though he said don't get your hopes up, and it wasn't his fault. But for him to turn around and say that, it was just, oh, no, you know. And we've learned too because this has occurred so many years prior, it was outside the statute of limitations for public mischief. So he couldn't be charged for anything, but he was, had, was given, I'm told, a good, good talking to. Creating the Mikey Boy Facebook profile and making a false confession was just one of the instances where Kevin Britton tried to ingratiate himself into the Levisons' lives. But there were also others. People who, for whatever twisted reason, want to be close to the case. I do wonder if, in their obsession, they ever stop to think about just how hard they are making things for the family. They mustn't. They wouldn't do it otherwise. But even though families of missing loved ones are very quickly made wary of the tactics of these low lives, it's still near impossible to ignore the bait. Then we had a nutter ingratiate himself Many into it. nutters. But this one in particular, he contacted me from Brisbane. He said he was gay and he'd helped in another investigation, which I'll just put that aside, but he wanted to help us. He knew we were going out looking. I can't remember how he found that out because I didn't contact him at first. He gave me his number and I thought, yes, do I ring him? No, do I? And we talked about it. We said, well, just see what he has to say. Anyway, he said he was coming to Sydney and he helped us search. And he did a bit outside, but then I said to Mark, I don't like him. There's just something about him. He's just, he's too obsessed because every time we'd say, no, we're not going out. He'd say, oh, I was helping this family down in Wollongong and they just gave up on their son, blah, 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 blah. And he's, he's just, and he reckoned he was a private investigator and blah, blah. And I was in and out of the hospital as well on top of all this. And a couple of times Mark went out by himself with him, which I was a bit worried about. I said, we've just got to let it go. And it got to the stage where Mark was working a lot of a night time with the business in tax season and I'd have to sit here in darkness because he would be out there stalking me. Every time I went onto Facebook, he knew I was here and he'd be on the phone, oh, can I come for a cup of coffee? And he'd just turn up. And one particular time I had to get Jason, ring Jason and say, get home, I need to go. We need, we've got to go out, just come and get me. And anyway, so that went on. I'd gone to a psychic because he'd grab at straws. He'd grab at straws. And he went to the same psychic that I went to and came back and said that the psychic said that he was Matt's dad in another life and he was sent to help us and Maddie was his son. He was, at, that, at that stage I said to Mark, he's gone, he's out of here. His obsession was such that it was either had a weird personality or there was past history with Atkins. So I suspect that the latter. He might be, because he said he was gay, which is fine, but maybe he was a spurned lover. I just don't know, but he just seemed overly obsessive he to was. get him. He, it turned out, Mark, he was. He was, uh, had something to do with Atkins. He, but he um, he actually set up a false grave site down in the National Park. He came into work and he said, I've called the police, I've found a grave, there's a mattock in the bush. The dogs are going ballistic. Uh, they've found a body and he's had this face, this smirk on his face, and I kept saying, is it Matt, is it Matt? He said, I'm going back. Next minute we get a phone call from the police. He told the police he was working for us. He wasn't working for us. He'd set up a false grave and the, he used the wrong brand of Matic anyway. <sighs> so. Creep. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Wow. Far out. So there were a number of incidences, I think, with this 
guy. Yep. Oh, yeah. This is so he came about out of the blue. He made contact with you via social media yep. initially. Yep. And then got to a point where you met with him in person. person yeah. As did so many. We have a file yeah. called the Kook file. <laughs> um, and it's about yeah. 10 and inches thick. It's huge. Bet. It is huge. This man was not the only entry in the Kook file. There were others who harassed the Levisons. It's hard to comprehend how people could do this to a grieving family searching for their son's remains. What possesses these types to prey on such desperation and vulnerability? We had one person come into the office and that was scary because Mark was out and there was just myself and the lady who worked for us and he came in and he, and he had a folder and he put it on our reception desk and hugged me and started crying. He said, I've got depression, I'm gay and all this. He said, I know where Matt is. Um, you're, you're searching for Matt and I've been down the National Park. I've been crawling around. He's in, in um, a drum in the water. Uh, you moved his shoes I found some shoes and you've moved them. I said, no. And he laid this map out on the ground and he, I want to know where you've, you've looked, uh, where have you bo- your boys are going out looking. If they see an eagle, they're going to find him. And he just kept going on and on. And he said, um, I've tried to go to the police and they won't listen, but you know, show me where you've looked and, and this, and I couldn't get rid of him. And this just, he was in the office for an hour and a half. And anyway, the lady that worked with us had sense enough to go out and, and get photos of every car that was, luckily there wasn't that many cars parked out the front of our office. And I finally got rid of him because I, I didn't know whether he had an, in his bag, he had a, a gun, a knife or anything. I just didn't know how unstable he was. Anyway, when I rang and it was, it was Scott, Detective Scott. He knew of him and they had his name down, so he got he got a got a warning. Oh my gosh, how terrible that on top of everything you have to be fearful. Well these are just some, a few examples. I mean, there's yeah. so many have come to us with the you knowing where Matt was and uh, he's gonna be found under a tree near water. It's the fucking national park. What do you expect? <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's just what what they would tell us and uh, And then that uh, uh, one man rang up. Yes, his daughter had seen Matt in a vision. And he's the first one that alluded, didn't you want to know where your son is? And then we saw that fishing for money. And he made us feel terrible that we didn't, don't you, you know, know? He, his daughter needed to get it off her chest, you know. Wouldn't, don't you really want to know where your son is? We've got the key. She's he, And she was only nine or ten. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? But she sees things. She sees but it. only for a price. She won't communicate the things that she sees until never, never said, said, but that but was but a implied, yeah. In, yeah. implied, yeah. you know. And then we kept saying thank you very much, but no, thank you. And after about four backwards and forwards, he just stopped. Even though the homicide squad had begun looking into Matt's case afresh, the Levisons continued to petition the coroner for the inquest to be resumed. A week before Christmas in 2014, they wrote a letter explaining how the not guilty verdict had left them shattered and confused. Aside from the need to find their son, there was another reason the Levisons thought an inquest would help. The rules of evidence for an inquest were very different to those of a trial. A coroner could hear evidence that would never be allowed at a trial. Trials were adversarial, two sides battling it out while inquests were inquisitorial, which meant they existed to find the truth. To so many families like the Levisons, caught up in trials, it didn't feel like they existed to uncover the truth. If evidence can be deemed inadmissible and the jury only hears half the truth, how can anyone be expected to find justice? But an inquest was a different beast entirely. Gary came up with the idea of taking it back to inquest because if it didn't go to inquest again our case would have just gone back to cold case and probably never seen the light of day we'd be still ringing them up hounding them what's going on with the case and probably getting the same answer nothing so it was a chance to get Matt's name out in public again and hopefully get witnesses to come forward that knew something to help us bring Maddie home so that that was a a bit of a winded time to try and 
to get it back to inquest. So Gary th- said that the inquest is another tool, investigative tool, and as uh, the inquest is uh, inquisitorial and not, not adversarial like you have a, in a criminal trial, and I mentioned before the, the evidence act doesn't apply. So it was another way of getting information in about Matt. We might find some new things and uh, he didn't know where it would go. And we didn't know where it would go, but it was just, again, we're all clutching at straws. Let's try something. And it was one more tool that we could have a shot at. I think it's the first time it's ever been done where there's been an inquest after an acquittal. So we set a precedence there. Again, it was the Levisons pushing for the inquest. Their case highlights just how much falls back onto the family. Think of all the heartbroken families that, understandably, just don't have the tenacity or means to do what the Levisons did. Yeah, we wrote to the, uh, to the state coroner. Michael Barnes. Is Michael yeah, Barnes. I think it was Michael Barnes seeking the inquest just along the lines of, uh, you know, we put our faith in the justice system. We have not got any conviction. We have not got Matt. We've got nothing. We've been let down badly by the system. What can we do now? And uh, that got us over the line and the inquest was, was granted. A month later, in January 2015, the then state coroner Michael Barnes agreed. The date was set for July that year. The inquest would be heard by Deputy State Coroner Elaine Truscott. The Levisons were also interested in having an inquiry into whether the police had done all that they could to understand if their concerns were legitimate. We wanted to solely focus on bringing Maddie home. That was our sole purpose, to bring Matt home, not to go down the path of why, how and when, what they did wrong. Yes, some did come out and I'm grateful that it did, but we just had the one sole purpose and that was to bring Matt home. And I'll say it again and again, we don't bash police. They do an amazing, amazing job in some shockingly trying circumstances, under-resourced, they try, a lot do try. What we bash is incompetence, particularly when it involves your own son's murder investigation. On the next episode of Maddie... No, I just said the bullshit stops now. That's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We rang Miranda Police Station, said we really desperately need to talk to one of them. Four occasions, four different stories. <laughs>